Grab yourselves a seat. Today I want to talk about an issue that comes up in the reading, and I think it is something that uh, is troubling over the course of you know, human thought and history, how you deal with and understand this, and it is about the afterlife. What happens when we die? And there's been a lot written about it and spoken about it over 2,000 years. And I am going to give you a little bit of an overview of a whole lot of these thinking. Now, if you come away from here feeling certain with no confusion or questions, I don't think I've done my job right. This is a tricky topic. How do we understand what happens when we die? And what have people thought? And what does Jesus say? And is this, in fact, the point of the reading today at all? So um, sit back as I take you through a little bit of a journey through 2,000 years of thought history on what this is from a whole lot of different angles. I'm going to read you the passage and then we'll dive into how do we understand this whole idea of life after death. Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus. As Lazarus, who was covered with sores, as Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried. And he went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. The rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them that they, so that they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. And the rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead... Then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. So in the early church, for the first 50 or so years, the early followers of Jesus were writing letters and telling each other, here is the story of the gospel. And then time went on. By about 200 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, early church fathers, they're called, because they were typically men back in the day, they were writing and they were saying that the truth um, or the trick to eternal life is doing good deeds. And if you do good deeds, that's when you inherit eternal life. And then the bureaucracy of a large church grew up around and it became that the trick to eternal life 
was to be part of the church. And so if you think medieval Catholic church, and you've probably seen it in movies, this rich, sumptuous kind of organisation with uh, priests and bishops that have people, you know, trapped with this fear that if you are not part of the church, you are going to go to hell for all eternity and suffer terrible suffering. And you think artworks during this time, and there are lots of them, paint a pretty grim picture of this eternity and torment. And so this captures people's minds and imaginations. And, you know, people ran to get their babies baptised as soon as possible because that meant they were part of the church. And then that meant that they would go to heaven when they died. And people living in this fear of eternity. Now, I think there's some similarities to this point in human his- in Christian history with some groups that emerge now. If you think, again, I talk about this a lot, but I'm fascinated by it. If you think of Gloria Vale and you hear the stories, people say they wanted to leave but were too scared because they thought they'd be going to hell if they left Gloria Vale. It's the same kind of technique of, you know, get people in a group and then tell them, if you leave this group, you're going to suffer for all eternity in torment. It's quite a good incentive to stay, um, but again, very controlling. And in the midst of this, this thinking that had grasped people's imaginations um, and held them with fear, in about the 1500s, a man called Martin Luther, who was a Catholic at the time, um, wrote about this whole situation what he saw happening that had become, he believed, quite corrupt. And he wrote, and his thinking sparked off what we now call the Protestant Reformation that changed the way of thought and thinking, not just in um, Christian history, but probably in Western human history around people's thinking of what happens when you die. And he wrote these words, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. And here, cutting through this noise of, if you are not part of the church, you're going to hell, came Martin Luther, who said, Jesus has paid the price, has taken the punishment, and so therefore our eternal destination is heaven. Martin Luther King went on to say that one of the things we wrestle with is this possibility of this free gift. The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust, the love and grace of Christ, and must take matters into our own hands. Now you see, if you look around in culture, um, this idea has permeated around actually what we need to do is be a good person. It's back to this idea, if you're a good person, you go to heaven. If you're a bad person, then you go to hell, and it's your own efforts. When someone dies, you hear this language all the time. You know, should I say this? You hear it, he was a good bugger, he's going to heaven. (laughs) That's kind of in New Zealand, That's what people say. And then you see, if somebody has been arrested and done a terrible, heinous crime, 
in the courtroom as they're dragged away to face their sentence, the family of the victims are yelling, go rot in hell. And this is our idea in our culture. If you're good, you're a good person, you're going to heaven. If you're bad, you're going to hell. It's come back to this idea, this is something we have to work out. And the reality is, you know, we're just still striving. Martin Luther, King, Martin Luther offers this glimpse that uh, here is another way of seeing it and understanding, and he goes back through the Bible and scriptures that Jesus has paid the ultimate price, and it doesn't matter if we're a rotter, we go to heaven. Now, in the sort of 50s onwards, there grew up, and some of you will have grown up in churches that have sort of sprung up since then or grown since then, this idea, therefore, that the one thing that is needed for you to go to heaven is to claim Jesus you know, as Lord. And so there's been almost an industry created around creating little pamphlets that have in the back of them the sinner's prayer. Has anyone here heard of the sinner's prayer, heard that phrase? Now, at nine o'clock this morning, lifelong Anglicans mostly, they'd never heard of this. What is this thing? Was I like, people here will know what this is. So the sinner's prayer was this. We're all dirty rotters, destined for hell, all you need to do now is say that you trust in Jesus. Bingo, ticket to heaven. This is the simple exchange. And then the energy from these Christian movements is to get as many people as possible to say the prayer. And then they're over the line, phew, into heaven. Now, I um, often catch up with different pastors and I hear them talk like this. Last Sunday, we had 37 salvations what they mean is that they had an altar call at the end of the service. People came up and they prayed the sinner's prayer. Now they're saved, they're going to heaven. Now, when I grew up, this was a common, you know, thought where I was. But again, it really raises a whole lot of questions. So what if you've never heard of Jesus? What happens then? What if you don't say it? You know, are people because they haven't said that correct prayer, going to spend eternity in torment. Is anyone here, I see some nods. Is anyone here kind of like, that was what you heard growing up, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I see those nods. And so how do you then marry this with the picture we see in Jesus of this kind and compassionate and forgiving and welcoming person. In the Bible, seven times it repeats in many different books of the Old Testament this phrase, the Lord, the compassionate and, and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This, this is a sort of phrase. God is loving, compassionate, compassionate, you know, being kind, gracious is giving us kindness we don't deserve, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is the picture we get through scripture of God. How do we marry this picture? The creator of the universe loves you, and if you don't say the correct prayer is going to send you for all eternity to burn in hell. Like, you've got to play some mental gymnastics to make that kind of settle. How does that work? Now, I heard this sort of thing, um, all manner of different places growing up, this kind of thing, and it developed in me anxiety, like real fear, 
Fear not just for myself, but for other people around me. I have a good friend, and she grew up in a big church, um, Central Christchurch, and she said every week they'd tell this message, and every week she'd be full of fear and come charging down the front and have someone pray for her, because what if, what if she hadn't actually been saved? And again, it's kind of a repeat of the medieval church. If we just keep people in fear, then, you know, it's a form of control and keeping them in. I found great solace when I discovered this fabulous book. And if you had grown up with that teaching and you haven't read this, I'd encourage you to read it. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia books, wrote this book called The Great Divorce. And in it, it tells the story of heaven and hell using his incredible imagination. And in it, he has, it starts off in hell and hell is gloomy and gray and people are whinging and complaining all the time. He talks about Napoleon is off in one corner, ranting and raving to himself and not interacting with anyone else, and he names these historic figures, and they're there, you know, in hell. But there's a bus that comes every few years to take people out of hell to heaven if they want to. And so the character in the story goes and lines up for the bus, and he's whinging and complaining, and everyone in the line is you know, whinging and complaining, which reminds me a little bit of New Zealanders in queues, but, you know, there they go, whinging and complaining in the line, and eventually the bus comes and takes him. And heaven is so real and so beautiful, it hurts him. And then unravels the story, and I'm not going to tell you how it finishes. You can buy this book relatively cheaply online. It's a good story. But not in this book, but some of his general thinkings and writings around it. This is what C.S. Lewis says. I've got three quotes from him. We must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, and where everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. But this is his interpretation then of who ends up in hell. There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, those who knock, it is opened. And the last quote, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful. Rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. Really fascinating turn and take and understanding of, you know, this concept. So that's one way of understanding it. I could leave you there because that's quite a comfortable one. But now I'm going to tell you some other concepts that people are wrestled with because I think... You know, how you view the afterlife affects how you live here and now. Now, in the Bible throughout, there are four words that in English are sometimes translated as hell. The first one's in Hebrew. You find it in the Old Testament, and it means sheol. It literally means grave, like those out there, if we were talking in Hebrew, would say sheol, their graves. Now, sometimes they translate this word grave, and sometimes they translate it hell. You know, is, does it mean hell? Does it mean great? It's, you know, tricky to understand. Now, in Jesus' time, the Jews were divided into two camps, those that believed in an afterlife and those that didn't. The Sadducees 
didn't believe in the afterlife, the Pharisees did. And so they were unconvinced, and they had different perspectives. Some of them were just like, you die, you die, that's it. You go rest with your ancestors, and that's metaphorical. You're lying there. And others are like, no, there's an afterlife. The next word is Greek. You find it in the New Testament. Hades, exactly the same meaning as Sheol, grave. Ambiguous to what it means. Then there's a word Gehenna that is sometimes used. This is used as a metaphor because Gehenna is a real place. It's a rubbish dump where people who are very unwell lived. So it's a horrible picture of torment. And the final word, Tartarus, is a Greek word that means hell because the Greeks had a very defined concept of hell. A lot like a lot of pagan cultures, very defined picture of hell with the fire and the torment. But here's a comment on all of this. The Greek hell was Tartarus. This is the only word in the Bible that actually means hell in either Greek or Hebrew. But the word Tartarus appears only once in the entire Bible in 2 Peter 2.4. And that verse is about fallen angels awaiting judgment. So it is not eternal and it is not for human beings. The only verse in the Bible that contains a word that actually means hell is about a place where Satan and other fallen angels will await judgment. So here's a different view. There's actually nothing for those eternal punishment, you know, for the bad eggs. It's just, it finishes. And if you come to some scriptures with that in mind, you start reading really popular verses a little bit differently. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When I read this growing up, I would have read it, the wages of sin is hell, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The words are the wages of sin is death. And here enters this idea that maybe everyone dies, but for those who trust Jesus, there is the gift of eternal life. There's a gift to be risen again. Even this famous John 3.16, this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. So here is again a completely different interpretation. And I think in our Western sensibility, this feels good. Nobody is tortured for eternity in hell. People just cease to exist. But there's a comment made that this doesn't go down so well in cultures that suffer a lot. And you think in the Ukraine at the moment, you think what Putin is doing. And I re- want to read some reflections on a um, theologian called Miroslav Volf, who is from Eastern Europe. And this is what he says. It's easy for us to scoff at divine justice when we're used to counting on human justice. But in places where there is no human justice, they don't scoff at divine justice. They cry out for it. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. In his book, Free of Charge, Miroslav Vol says, although I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I'd have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. 
God is wrathful because God is love. So we're left in this perplexing place. And as I said, I'm not going to resolve it. How do you feel about Hitler and his eternity? What do you think should happen? What about your own eternity? And then what is this parable actually all about? Here's the story of a poor man who it seems just by being poor goes to heaven and a rich man goes to hell. I think the issue with this parable is it's interesting to ponder what is Jesus saying about heaven and hell? But more, what is Jesus saying in the context? Because it's a story. And he's talking to the Pharisees who believe in hell, whereas there's other people who don't. And the Pharisees were teachers of the law who thought that they were self-important and self-righteous and that they had a ticket to heaven. And the point of the story, fascinating though it is, to ponder what happens when you die, the point of the story is to call out the Pharisees for being hypocrites. You think that you're assured of your salvation, but look at your lives. Jesus is constantly inviting people into this new kingdom. And it's a kingdom that will reflect the values of his eternal life, where everyone finds a welcome, where the sick are healed, where the poor have find relief, and there is no more suffering, and Jesus invites us to live out this kingdom here on earth. And he's challenging the Pharisees because they don't. They don't live out this kingdom. They live by their own pride. And so here is a passage where Jesus is calling them, here's what you believe. You believe that certain people are going to heaven and that you're sure of it, but I tell you this, you don't even care for the poor at your gate. And here's the challenge for us in our rich Western context, assured of our own success in the world. Jesus wants us to remember and to be concerned with the poor. So how do we live this? How do we live this in our life? I want to finish by reading you a quick passage that the Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy, saying what to do with this whole desire to be wealthy that had caught the Pharisees in this trap. And Paul writes to Timothy, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So, if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Pursue righteousness and a godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. 
Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Here's this invitation. Come and experience true eternal life by being rich to others, generous to those who are in need. Here's a little bit of a summary of that passage. Here is the key. Be content if you have enough food or clothing. Don't love or crave money. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, perseverance and gentleness. Again, don't trust in money. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous to those in need. Let's pray together. Jesus, it is fascinating to sit here and consider all these things people have written about what happens when we die. And we have a fascination with that. But you call us to live here on earth in a way that reflects the eternity you want us to be called into. Help us to hear your voice in the here and now. Do not become so obsessed with what happens when we die that we forget to live now. Lead us in the ways of your kingdom. May we be generous. May we be content. May we pursue your kingdom here on earth. Amen.